You're listening to audio from First Christian Church. To find out more about us or to donate to our ministries, visit firstabq.org. It's Easter morning, and I had to get outside, get a new perspective, a new view. With the mountains and the sky and the sun rising, get to hear the birds and even the cars. I just had to get out of doors to get away from the stuffy news and to take in a new perspective. In fact, why don't you go outside? You can take me with you. If your technology lets you, take me out to the front yard or to a park. If not, stay comfy right where you're at. The message of Easter is simple. It's the same. Christ is risen. In fact, I want to invite children of all ages to say it with me. Christ is risen. That unchanging message will be announced across the globe today like it should be every day. But this year it just feels different where we sit. Our perspective has changed with dealing with this virus and the pandemic. And it just seems like our schedules have been shuffled, our bodies have been stuffed into rooms and bedrooms, weddings have been shrunk down or even postponed, funerals delayed or even canceled, proms canceled, graduation canceled. It just feels like things are different. And so I want to ask and answer a question today. What does this Easter story offer us in our suffering during this pandemic? As life seems so different, I think the people of all faiths are asking this question, what does this same old story of Jesus being risen really offer us today? So I want to tell you a story. In fact, if you want to follow along, I'm going to be in Mark chapter 16. So you can grab a Bible, look on the table of contents to find the Gospel of Mark, and then look for the big number 16 inside of Mark. Or you can Google it on your browser or pull it up on your app and read along. If all of that's too much trouble, don't worry. I'm going to walk you right through this story. Jesus was a man. He was born to an unmarried young girl named Mary. She was engaged when he was conceived, but he grew up after being born in Bethlehem. He grew up in the town of Nazareth, which was near Galilee. All of these places are in the small little country of Israel. Jesus had a short three-year ministry of traveling and healing, of teaching people about God. He's most known because people called him the Son of God and also for his cruel death on a cross. Now, a cross was uh, an X-shaped contraption, a torture contraption, conceived by the Roman government to execute people. A pole was put upright and then a crossbar was where a person's hands were nailed and their feet were nailed to the base pole. It was a cruel way to die after being beaten. And this is the way that Jesus died. Now it doesn't really fit for Jesus because he never really hurt anyone. He healed people. He fed people. He taught people about God. But evidently, he was a threat. You see, Jesus was a rebel. He threatened the religious systems of his day. Think priests and other religious leaders. 
He threatened the political powers of his day. You can think about governors and kings or even Caesar himself. Now you probably know this story. It's not new. In fact, you might be quite familiar with it. So what I want to do is focus in on just a piece of the story, the place where Jesus is dead. He's there hanging on the cross. It's late on a Friday afternoon, and the Sabbath is quickly coming. At this point, all of his disciples have abandoned him. The night before, those that were the 12 that were the closest to him, his followers, one of them betrayed him to a mob with clubs and swords. Jesus was arrested, and then all of his followers ran away and fled. As Jesus hangs here on the cross, all that are left are some women, some female disciples of his, that are watching him die. There are also religious leaders that walk by, that mock him and say, some son of God this guy was. There was no revolt for freedom from Rome. All their intentions of Jesus being king and Messiah now lay hanging dead on this cross. And this is where our story picks up. Let's look in chapter 16, verse 1. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they'd been saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? This had been a holiday week, and it didn't end very well with their Lord, their Messiah, their King, now dead. And these three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, had been there when Jesus died. They had to work to get him buried quickly because the Sabbath was coming. They couldn't have a funeral. There wasn't time to properly honor Jesus' death, to grieve his death, even to clean his body and prepare it and anoint it for burial. Everything just felt unfinished. What had happened on that afternoon is that a Jewish religious council member named Joseph of Arimathea came and got legal custody of Jesus' body. And he quickly wrapped it in a linen cloth, buried him in his own tomb, and rolled the stone in front of it. And Mark's Gospel lets us know that Mary, the two Marys and Salome were right there watching, and they knew where they laid Jesus down. I can't imagine what that Sabbath was like for them. Not able to, to cook or work or walk, not able to leave their home, and thinking about the unsettled nature of Jesus' death, I don't imagine they experienced a Sabbath rest like they were used to. It probably had to feel like so many people in New York, where the morgues are overrun with dead bodies, where the funeral directors are backed up, where the governor himself is pleading for funeral directors from other states to come and help them. It's just not what they would want. This week, I texted a friend, a very spiritual friend, who really enjoys Holy Week every year. And he's not an introvert, he's an extrovert, one of these prone to lots of words. He teaches people for a living. And so I asked him, what new perspective does he have on Holy Week this week? And he sent me back the shortest text. It's not. 
That's all he said. Nope, nothing new this year. I think my friend represents where we're at. We're fed up. We're fed up with this virus. We're fed up with officials that are focused on themselves and on their ego and on their own futures more than they are on the people that are suffering right in front of them. And we're just frustrated. We're frustrated and tired of what's going on. Well, these women, I think, were frustrated too. They, they just want to do something. They've been cooped up for the Sabbath. They have this unfinished funeral, this unfinished burial to attend to, and they just want to do something good. Can you relate? Just wanting to do something good and get out? Well, they do. They get out. They've got some spices. They head off to the tomb, but they're not thinking through everything. Their plan is incomplete because they're still in crisis mode. The stone. The stone is in front of the tomb, and they saw Joseph and probably some other heavies help move that stone to close it off. I mean, when you're closing off a tomb, you're doing it for good. You're sealing it up. It's not to, meant to be like a grocery store automatic doorway that opens and closes. Now it's meant to be stay closed, stay sealed. So their plans, their intentions are good, and their plan is somewhat incomplete. And here's how the story picks up in verse 4. When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has been raised. He's not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. So these women go expecting a continuation of what they've seen. Death, a closed tomb. They have a very realistic view. They saw Jesus laid there. And they were just going to honor him, to finish showing their love and their respects to him. And so they're going, expecting to see a closed tomb with a bloody body in it. They're prepared for a gruesome ordeal. But what they find is an open tomb and a young man in brilliant white clothes who can read their minds and knows the questions that they're asking. Oh, you're looking for Jesus, the one who was crucified. And then we get the Easter message. He's risen. He's not here. Now that's the message that we must hear on Easter Sunday. He is risen. To be in touch with this day and any day, we need to know Jesus is risen. But this man, this young man in bright white says it in three ways. He's risen. He's not here. Look, there is where they laid him. So he answers their question first He's risen. And then he begins to explain it. He's not here. Look, there is where they laid him. Now, as I think about how my eye or my brain would register this, I would probably look to the place where they laid him and say, okay, he's not there. And then I would wonder, okay, he's not here. Where is he? Perhaps he's risen. Let's just say they're completely shocked and horrified because these circumstances are not what they expected. It terrifies them, it overwhelms them. And when we're presented with new circumstances, it's easy to be paralyzed, 
It's even easy to overreact at times. And certainly it is okay to be alarmed and shocked. Well, the young man speaks into their shock and their horror. And let's pick up in verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he said. So they went out, and they fled from the tomb, for terror and amazement had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Well, this young man can see into their wide eyes, to see into their gaping mouths, and just read the questions that are on their hearts. And he very gently answers those questions and guides them to what they need to do. Go, go tell the disciples and Peter that Jesus is ahead of you in Galilee and you'll see him. And so we expect them to go and tell, but that's not what they do. In fact, in the Gospel of Mark, all through this story, strangers have been identifying Jesus and he's told them, shh, don't say anything to anyone. In fact, early on, it's the demons and evil spirits that say to Jesus, Oh, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. And Jesus casts them out, shushes them. In the center of the book, Jesus asks who people are claiming that Jesus is. And there are lots of names that are thrown out, lots of prophets. And he turns it on his followers and says, Who do you say that I am? And they say, You're the King. You're the Messiah. You are the Christ. And Jesus says, that's right, but shh, don't tell anyone. Keep your silence until after I'm resurrected. And then in chapter 9, Jesus is on a mountain and he's transfigured. He's glorified before them. And Moses and Elijah appear with Jesus. And it's an amazing scene. As they're walking down the mountain, after this amazing scene, Jesus says, mum's the word. Don't tell anyone at all about this. Wait until after the resurrection. And here in this moment, they're told to tell, to go, to share this good news message that Christ is risen. And what's interesting to me is that this is how the earliest and most reliable manuscripts end the Gospel of Mark, right here, with the women fleeing, running away from the tomb in terror and amazement and saying nothing to no one. That's most likely how this Gospel ends. Now, of course, I believe the Holy Spirit inspired the rest of this chapter, verses 8 through 20, that tell us about the many appearances of Jesus. And these stories are exactly what the apostles did. And so I like to just think maybe it got hidden for a while. But it's quite compelling to think about this story ending right here because it gives us a new perspective. This is why I think it preaches. It draws us into the story, you and I. We're invited to go and to tell, to share what we know. We're begged and invited to be the spokespeople about this message that Christ is risen. And so I think it works. It works that we can enter into this life of being with Jesus, doing the things that Jesus does, saying the things that Jesus says, and going where Jesus goes. In fact, even in the longer version of Mark, in in verse 20, those four things show up. Being with Jesus, doing the things Jesus does, 
saying the things Jesus says and going where Jesus goes. But instead, these women are afraid. They flee. They're terrified. And they're silent. Well, my question still remains. What does this Easter story offer us in our suffering during this pandemic? I mean, we've been dealing with this for five weeks. Where is God in the chaos of this suffering? Why won't this virus stop spreading? If God is good, then why does God allow this evil to continue? Why do we have to go through life wondering if we're even going to be able to have a funeral for those that have died? Why do we have to put off our weddings and cancel paychecks? Why is it that business people have to make decisions of, am I going to pay my employees or am I going to furlough my employees? Why do our medical professionals, our first responders, who have to go into the ER and take lives into the ambulance or receive people in these lines, why do these doctors and nurses have to face the choice of, am I going to take my paycheck or am I going to risk my health? Why is it that every day they have to make choices of, am I going to treat a patient with COVID-19 or do I need to protect the other patients who don't have COVID-19? These are very difficult realities that we face as we come to the open tomb of death. And I've been asked some difficult questions. And I think it's okay to fearfully and respectfully ask what someone asked me this week, where the hell is God? It's a good question. It's one that deserves an answer. I think this story shows us where God is. This story of Jesus, his birth, his life of ministry and service and healing, and his death, they show us where God is. It's not an easy answer. It's not a cute pastel egg. This is not a G-rated Easter cartoon. The answer is there's the rock where they laid him. He's not here. He is risen. The silence of the tomb forces us to ask some questions. Whenever we look for God and he's not where he's supposed to be, it's okay to ask, where is God? And I think God is here. He is right here with us in this suffering and death because Jesus didn't run away from suffering. He didn't run away from death. He humbly entered into suffering and death, even when we ran away. You see, Jesus didn't take the chair of the high priest. He didn't take the crown of Caesar. He went to his death for us. He endured suffering. He endured death. And he endured it even when we fled and ran away. The birth of Jesus for God to enter into human flesh is amazing. The life that he lived of serving other people is profound. And his death, his willing suffering and death, shows us something important. But his resurrection makes it all the more clear where Jesus is. Jesus is with us in our suffering. Jesus is with us in our death. 
and it lets us know a very important news flash. We're not going to escape suffering. We're not going to escape death. We're not going to be able to avoid times whenever we face unfair circumstances. We just can't. And we can know that Jesus is right there with us in our suffering. We can know that God reigns and God rules. We don't have to compare ourselves and look around and see who's got it better or worse than us right now. We have to live the life where we are right now. We share this path of being with Jesus. And we can know that we can enter that ER room not alone, but with Jesus. We can approach that client with Jesus. We can open up our store with Jesus. We can also not only be in the presence of Jesus, but do the things that Jesus did. We make choices about how we show love, God's love to other people, by acting as if God loves other people. Not with our words, which is good, but with our actions that support it. We can begin to say and to speak the good news that God reigns. Good news that shows up in Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. The kingdom of God, the reign of God is here. Turn your life around and enter this good news. It's available to you. We can believe it. We can receive it. We can live it. And we can go. We can go outside of ourselves, outside of our fear, present with Jesus, but going where he leads us. Sometimes we need that nudge and that reminder, not just to stay protected, but to go out and serve where Jesus is. This is not a time for, for canned refrains about the good news. It's not a time for very simple gas station altar calls of telling people the plan of salvation. There's something that we can do that's very real. Where we hold up this good news that God reigns and that God is with us through suffering. And we hold up that good news to our lives. We could do it in three ways. We can pose questions, the questions that we have. We can offer those questions up. Now that I have faced this death in my family, how does God reign through her death? You see that? We're posing a question about how God's reign can speak to whatever we're going through. Or, how is it that when I'm isolated in my bedroom, how can God reign here? Or, whenever we are faced with mounting bills, with medical procedures that can't be done in the way that we want, how is it that God can reign over me? So we can ask those questions. We can hold up the good news. Or we could do it a slightly different way. We could pose them to God. If we're so bold, pose them directly to God. God, will you reign in my medical facility? God, will you reign over my business practices? Fill in the blank and we just invite God to reign and we watch and see how God reigns. There's one more way that we can enter this comparing the good news, the reign of God, to our current circumstance. If you're not feeling the reign of God, what if you were to show it? You know, you see a need that needs to be met. 
You see someone that needs to be served, and so you show what God's reign looks like by your life and by your action. You take the person to the doctor and you tell them, I'm taking you to the doctor because God loves you. You see someone with a bill that they can't pay and you pay the bill and you let them know, I'm paying the bill because my money is God's money. And I want you to know that God loves you. You see, God is with us. God's with us as we serve people that are strangers to us, people that are friends and family to us, people that are even opponents to us. And especially people like a child or someone who cannot pay us back for what we've done. Well, we've been given a new perspective on Easter Sunday. We've been given a perspective that transcends our normal way of looking at things. A perspective that God reigns and that we can trust the reign of God. Because God has added to this story that's been from the dawn of time of his reign, he has added the fact that God reigns through suffering and death, and that God's willing to enter suffering with us. In our rejection, in our abandonment, in all of the suffering that we must endure, God is there with us in the ER, with us as a first responder, with us when we feel alone. Ah, the bells. As we gain this new perspective, we hear the bells. And in the fifth century, Christians began ringing bells to call people into church, to beckon them to come. And here on Easter Sunday, we ring the bells to announce that Christ is risen. And today on Easter Sunday, we announce something else. We announce that God has sent us out to be the church to be the church right where we are. That God is with us in our suffering and our death. And so we welcome the reign of God in our heart to be the body of Christ right where we are. May God reign now and forever, amen.